0: Well, last week, um, we actually worked through verse 30. But to conclude this chapter, it's best to go back to verse 28. But I can't do that without um, thinking about um, how easy it is to major on things that are not the central thing. And I know that when we stand before the Lord in glory the one regret we will all have is the time that we spent in things that really just didn't matter. Um, that either we did it in the energy and strength of the flesh, obviously we regret that, but just things that we focused on or, or just um, let our time be, be just um, wasted on, on the insignificant and trivial my mom's gone now, and it and it um, her being um, with the Lord, and and missing her it makes me think of all those different Sunday afternoon lunches that we spent together, and and so much time, where she had poured out her love and her heart by preparing a meal and having us all together, having the family together, and we spent so much time quarreling, arguing, um, and and not just giving the time and devotion back to the one who was so fully devoted to us. And life is going to be, sadly enough, it's full of, of lost opportunity because we focused on things that were not the main thing. In this passage here, beginning in verse 28, obviously the main thing that Paul is saying is that God causes all things to work together for good. But the reason he's saying that is because he wants us to realize that God is going to finish the work that he's begun in our lives. Keep in mind that this section of Romans is not about salvation. It is about our sanctification. Remember that Romans 8 follows right on the heels of Romans 7 where Paul's going, evil dwells in me. I wish to do good, but I do not do it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. And, and on, in response to that, Paul has spent this entire chapter talking about the present ministry of Christ's indwelling presence within the believer. And he wants us to realize that our sanctification has never been any more dependent upon us than our salvation was dependent upon us. That we cannot live the Christian life by our own strength, by our own good ambitions, by our resolutions or anything else. That the only one who can live the Christian life is the one who has come to live in us. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And my life will be a life of frustration and defeat as long as I am trying my best to live the Christian life, trying my best to please God and to do what is right, I have to learn what it means to yield presently in my present experience to the same one that I yielded to for my salvation. That as He saved me, that He lives in me to live this life. And until that becomes the dynamic of my life, the explanation of my life, then I will always live in the potential, if not the reality, of defeat. God will finish the work that He has begun in us. God is at work in the all things of life to bring us into conformity to Jesus Christ. And that is the good that He's bringing about. This is where we can start focusing on the things that are not essential. When we focus on called according to his purpose, or foreknew, or predestined. That is not Paul's main thing here, though these are important concepts and truths. Verse 29, "...for whom he foreknew." Everyone would agree that our God knows everything in advance of it happening." Whether he this verse, this foreknowledge means he foreloved or whether he simply foreknew, there is no dispute. God knows everyone and everything before it would ever happen. So what it means that he's God. There are no surprises to our God. He is absolutely sovereign. And everything that there is to know, God knows it presently because he is the I am In essence, in the essence of who God is, the I am. There is no past, present, or future in God's nature. It just is, and God knows it all as a present tense reality. Those whom He foreknew, those He knows in advance. And it's not that He that that we would all agree that there is nothing in me that compels God to to elect me or to save me or to choose me or respond to me or anything else that there is nothing outside of God that compels God. God is only compelled by what is true within Himself. We would all agree with that. But I believe as well that in God being compelled, and He is compelled by His own nature, my conviction is that when God sees that there is a a human being who, if given truth concerning Christ, if that person would respond then I believe that God is compelled by what is in Him, not by what is in that person, to then to reach out to that person and give them the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Second 2 Second Chronicles chapter 16 tells us that the eyes of the Lord search throughout the whole world, looking for the heart that is inclined to Him, that He might strongly support that person. I believe that God is only compelled by His own heart. And when He sees a heart that would respond to Him, then he reaches out with giving that person all that is necessary to come to a saving faith in Christ. He moves from there to predestination. And we'd have to again be, I believe, just true to the text here that this predestination is not in reference to salvation. It is in reference, as it says, to being conformed to the image of his son. And what he is telling us, and see again, it's like, it's like missing The good of being with mom on Sunday afternoon and quibbling about things that aren't the essential thing. The essential thing here, Paul is saying, is not whether or not we were predestined for salvation. That is not even the question here. He wants us to know as Christians we are predestined to conformity to Jesus Christ. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, it has been predestined God will finish the work He has begun in your life. God will bring you into 100% conformity to Jesus. Every one of us who have ever put our faith in Jesus, from that moment, Paul is saying, there is no question you will be brought into full conformity to Jesus. It is a guarantee. God has set His sovereign power behind it, it is His purpose, it is His will. God is a faithful God, and He would have to stop being faithful to not finish the work that He has begun in each one of us. We should take heart with that. We can miss the whole point here. Look at it again, that He has predestined those to become conformed to the image of His Son. All of us. Is that going to happen completely while we're still here on this earth? As so I've said before, I don't think so. I look at, we look at the example of men like Paul, the most eminent of all the apostles, and he's telling us near the end of his life that he has not yet attained. And he is still reaching forward for that upward call in Christ Jesus to lay hold of that for which he has been laid hold of. That he has not yet finished. He has not yet attained. I do not believe that any Christian will reach a state of sinless perfection in this life. We have sin in us. Evil lives in us, Paul says in Romans chapter 7. So we are not going to reach a state of perfection or a state of complete conformity to Christ while we're living this short time on earth. But it will be finished. The work that God has begun will be completed. And I think that many times when we think that He is least at work in our lives, sometimes He is most at work in our lives. And we go through those dry times, those hard times, and we look back on them, and many times God shows us how much He was at work and all the things that He was pouring into our life, the things that He was working out of us, the things that He was working in us during those times of great difficulty. God was at work then to bring us into conformity to Christ. And this is Paul's encouragement here. He is writing again in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is not speaking about salvation. He is talking about the present ministry of God's Spirit within the believer for sanctification. And he is absolutely committed to us being brought in conformity to Jesus Christ. In verse 30... He brings it up. He he follows it through a little further. He says, "In whom he predestined these, he also called; whom he called, these he also justified; in whom he justified, these he also glorified." All he's saying it is one hundred percent God's work. God is the one who calls. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who glorifies. And the emphasis here is on the glorification. And in God's economy, it is past tense. He has also justified. Again, He is the present tense God. It has all happened already in experience as far as God's concern, so it is good as done. We have, as far as God's concern, already been glorified. There is no question that it will take place because in God's mind it already has happened. All of these things are a reflection of who God is. God is compelled by His own nature. His own nature who is faithful, who is omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, and who is love. As 1 John tells us, God is love. You can no more lose your salvation, in other words, than God can stop being God. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here. That this is speaking of the security that we have in Christ. The work that God has begun is the work that He will finish. And if God finishes that work, then does not finish that work, then God has stopped being God. Because again, it is based upon His faithfulness, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His sovereignty, and the fact that God is love. Folks, if you've ever wondered if you have maybe lost your salvation or could lose your salvation, this passage ought to nail it shut. There is no possibility. Your salvation is wholly dependent upon God, and so is your sanctification. All Paul's trying to say here is that it is God. It is God who has called us, God who has justified us, and God who has glorified us. We will be conformed to Christ because it has been predestined. What then shall we say to these things? Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, think about it. I mean, this, it's like Paul ought to just say, at this point, you expect him to say, praise God. But he said he, gets, he amplifies it more than that. If God is for us, who, who could ever be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So you can see he's moving from... This is not about salvation, Paul's saying. But look at our salvation. If God gave his son for you, remember Romans 5. We were enemies of God when he gave his son for us. We were sinners. We were helpless. We were ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that now. None of these things are true. How much more does he love us now, Romans 5 says. Paul's coming back to that theme here. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything you need for living this life, God has supplied for us in Christ Jesus. He is the source of all that we need, and he will withhold nothing. We remember in, in when Paul wrote, When Peter wrote in his letters, he says, We've been made partakers of the divine nature. And everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us in Christ Jesus. God has withheld nothing. He is the dynamic of all that we need. The dynamic for the Christian life. Who could possibly bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised. So if Christ died for us, He took our condemnation and He rose from the dead, how can anyone possibly condemn us? God Himself doesn't, because that condemnation was poured out upon His Son. We will never be condemned. We should not condemn ourselves We should not let anyone else condemn us. We should not be guilty of condemning others because no one condemns. God Himself doesn't. Jesus not only died for us and was raised from the dead, but He also intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us and Jesus Himself intercedes for us. They are constantly in prayer on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, none of these things. But we will perhaps suffer all these things. And then he says in verse 36 again, The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to keep me from suffering. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not to heal me of every affliction, deliver me from every problem. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to keep me and to bring me into conformity to Jesus Christ in the all things of life. And the all things may include tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. We are still, at this time, like sheep, considered to be slaughtered. Many people still are going to consider the Christian as the scum of the earth, as just worthless and helpless sheep fit only to be slaughtered. But in all these things, God still loves us and we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And then his conclusion, I am convinced. And the question only is, are we? Are we as convinced as Paul that nothing shall separate us from the love of God? I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And nothing means nothing. I think it was C.S. Lewis that defined nothing as that which rocks think about. (laughs) <laughs> nothing 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 and no one can separate us from the love of God we need to think about that are we convinced we sin we may have done something or, um, that we have never thought we were capable of doing and then you wonder do I even really know the Lord? Am I his? I remember those days when, when Patsy, my wife, um, was pretty stressed out with four young children. I think there were three in diapers at the same time. And it was a difficult time. And there were a couple of times and she called me up in the middle of the day and said, if you don't come home right now, I'm not sure what you'll find when you get here. And I would rush home. One time, she was just sitting almost in a catatonic state in the kitchen floor with the four kids around her, trying to get her attention. Eyes glazed over, sitting there, and and the body was there, but that was it. She wasn't. And I'm thinking, we are in bad shape here. And I, you know, she would tell you she's not here today, so I'm feeling perfect liberty to talk about her. <laughs> Don't tell her, though. No. <laughs> she's given me permission to talk about these things. And I thought, we need help. And, and we, we had nannies living with us at times. Babysitters coming in regularly, Um, relatives even from Pennsylvania that flew down, my mom helping out a lot, nothing was helping. It was a hard time. And she told me that she didn't even know she was a Christian because she never thought that she would be capable of such despondency and depression Feelings of futility and helplessness and even anger to the point of thinking about hurting her own children. Maybe I'm not even a Christian, she thought. It's a hard time. Now she'd look back on that and say, God was at work. Didn't seem like it at the time. Didn't seem anything like it. And it would maybe, it did seem that, that God didn't love her. God wasn't answering her prayers. Nothing was changing. But Paul says, I am convinced. Paul went through those same kind of things much harder, not, you know, not three kids in diapers at the same time. But read through 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11 and all the different things that Paul went through. Unbelievable. This is not an academic thing. This is not um, a platitude in Paul's life. He was personally convinced nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing and no one. No one and no thing can cause God's love for us to cease. And God is at work in each of our lives to bring us to that full and perfect conformity to Jesus Christ. Our salvation is utterly dependent upon God. 100%. And Paul's trying to tell us so is our sanctification. You believed and you received Christ. But God at that moment made you, God did, a new creature, caused you to be born again from above. He indwelt you by His Spirit, and you can go on and on. He has sealed you for the day of redemption, He will keep you blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. He has forgiven all your sin. He has canceled the certificate of debt against you. And on and on we can go. All that God has done would have to be undone by you for you to lose your salvation. Think about that. All that God has done would have to be undone by you. Which would make you bigger than God. Folks, you ought to be just as convinced as Paul. There is nothing, nothing and no one that could cause you to lose your salvation. That could cause you to be separated from the saving love of God. If there is anything or anyone, then you are bigger than God. God has told us, moreover, that when you receive Christ, you become part of His family, part of His flock, to use the sheep metaphor. And He says, even should one of His sheep stray, He will leave the 99, and He will go and bring it back, that not one should be lost. He is a good shepherd, and a good shepherd does not lose sheep. He has a 100% success rate. There will never be God wringing his hands up in heaven and going, Man alive, I saved that person and now I've lost that person. It's not going to happen. Our salvation is 100% the work of God and our sanctification is 100% the work of God. Even that willful, rebellious sheep that runs away, And says, I never want to be a sheep again, and I renounce being a sheep. He's still the sheep of God. And God goes back after him and says, I don't care what you say, you're mine. Which reminds me of a story that I don't have permission to tell, so I won't name the sibling. We were kids. I was put in charge. My parents had gone somewhere. I don't know if it was for the evening or for the month. But um, (laughs) my dad left us with some money and said, go to Dairy Queen and feed yourselves. And so we did. We walked to Dairy Queen, took a couple of other buddies along, and there were too many of us for one table, so we sat at two different tables. My friend, who was with me, big kid, um, and I were sitting at the same table, and we got to talking and laughing. And, and um, my one of my siblings, who remain unnamed, was sitting across Dairy Queen at another table, way across the room, convinced that we were laughing at him. And the only one he really saw laughing was my friend. So he's convinced my friend was laughing at him. So my brother took his hamburger and threw it all the way across Dairy Queen <laughs> and hit my buddy square in the chest. It was an amazing throw. <laughs> so that will probably give you some hint who it was. He had hamburger and lettuce and onions and mayonnaise all over him, and he was not happy. And my brother is running out of Dairy Queen. And my friend said, I'm going to, it was something violent. (laughs) And I looked at him, and he's a lot bigger than I am. I only had bigger friends. (laughs) And I said, then you're going to have to do the same to me as well. And I ran after my brother. I didn't catch him until he had already made it all the way home and had decided that that's not where he wanted to be, and so he was leaving, and he was running away. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be in major trouble if my parents come home and we're missing one. (laughs) So I knew I can't let that happen, and I didn't know how to keep it from happening. So I, I picked him up and put him over my shoulder. He was bigger than me. And I carried him back home and I put him down in his room and, and he was crying and upset and he said, you can't keep me here. He said, as soon as you let me go, he says, I will leave. I am not going to stay. I'm running. And I said to him, and I will go with you. I'm not going to let you leave. And he stayed. Now, I just say that because it's the way it ought to be in the way it is with the Lord. You cannot outrun God. He won't let you. He's not going to turn you loose. And you can, with all the anger that you could muster, you could even spit in his face and say, you are not my God. You are not my Savior. And he will no more renounce you than a mother or a father could his child, her child. It's not going to happen. He saved us. He is the one who caused us to be born again from above. He cannot change who he is. He cannot be faithless. He cannot stop loving us. He's the one who made us a new creature. It's not going to be undone, no matter what we do or what we say. And again, this is not grounds to give permission and license to do whatever we want. But that kind of love is a love that controls us. Paul will write to the Corinthians and say, Convinced of these things, convinced of who Christ is and what he has done for me. He says, the love of Christ controls me. And I don't think he means there, my love for Christ controls me. Because he'd just been talking about what Christ had done. Christ love for me controls me. If I really understand that this is the depth and the breadth and the height of God's love for me. And I believe this is why Paul prayed as probably his most earnest prayer As he prayed for the Ephesians, he said, This is what I pray for you, that you might know the height and the depth, the width and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is something that ultimately the Spirit of God has to reveal to us. And he wants to. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. Two things this chapter ends up with all things work together for good because God is committed to our conformity to Jesus Christ. And secondly, nothing will separate us from the love of God. And we're not going to get into it today, but next Sunday we'll start with three chapters that deal with Israel. Big chunk, big chunk of Romans, 9, 10, and 11. Paul's thinking is very linear, very logical. And it's as though, when he is just presented in the strongest, clearest language possible, God is working everything together to the end of our conformity to Jesus Christ, and nothing will separate us from the love of God. It's as though He can hear people saying, "Then what about Israel?" Because I look at their experience, and it sure does not look like everything is worked together for good. Find me a Jew that says everything's working together for good. And I look at Israel and it sure does not look like that they are still living in the love of God. From all I can tell, God has rejected His people and He has a plan B in operation today. That's what it looks like. And so anticipating the objection to these two central truths that are rooted in the very character of God, Paul says, then let's talk about Israel. And we will come to the conclusion That God has not stopped loving his people. And God is working all things together for good, even for Israel. And I would conclude with an application that I think is legitimate to make. All of this chapter is, again, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of Christ's indwelling presence within the believer now for sanctification. But there is nothing that God is doing in me personally that He does not expect to be demonstrated through me in my relationship with other people. Would you all agree? If God is doing this for you and something for me, His expectation is that it not stop with us but that it be demonstrated and worked out in our relationships with one another and within our families especially. And so just to summarize, quick review of some of the things that Paul has said that God is doing by His Spirit in each one of us individually. There is no condemnation. He is leading us into life and peace. He he indwells us for intimacy he affirms, he bears witness that we are his. He gives us the full rights of being an heir with no favoritism being shown one toward another. We are actually co heirs with Jesus Christ himself. When we suffer, he suffers with us with groanings too deep for words. He intercedes for us, he stands with us, he is there with us and for us in all of that we suffer. His love is unconditional. His commitment is unconditional. He gives hope. He implants hope in our hearts because he tells us that all will work together for conformity to Christ, to our glory, to his glory. And he speaks that nothing will separate us from this union and this intimacy that he has brought us into. That's a lot. And he wants every one of those things to be true in how I relate to my wife, to my children, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, that no person in relationship with me should feel that I condemn them for what they have done. I can condemn what they've done, but no believer in relationship with me should feel that I condemn them as a person for what they have done. No one. There is nobody as a Christian who should feel that they are being led into bondage or into death, but rather into life in peace. They should sense that my love for them is not selfish but selfless and sacrificial. that my presence with them is not fickle but it's constant as constant as an indwelling. That my affirmation is not seasonal. It's not conditional. But it's an unconditional affirmation. My children should always know, no matter what, you are mine, and you will always be mine. And my friends should know the same. That I am your friend, and that's not going to go away Because of a problem that comes up between us. That there is no favoritism. That all are loved equally and fully. And that when you suffer, I suffer. I'm not the most empathetic person in the world, I've been told. My dad laughs, I knew he would. (laughs) But this is something that God does. And I find increasingly... That when I hear bad news, more and more, just troubles my soul. For the person, friends moving, the sadness it brings to our hearts, as it should. The joy of others, and how it should should bring joy to our hearts, not jealousy. Why didn't that happen to me? But true, genuine joy. Thank you, God. For the blessing that you've brought to my friend's life. And to rejoice with those who rejoice. To weep with those who weep. To stand and intercede for one another. To stand up for. It's one of the hardest things. To just have that spirit discernment of when God would just lead us to pray for a person. And when he would have us to stand in the gap as an advocate for that person. But we know that we have an advocate who stands before the Father constantly, and that we, He would have us also play the advocate for one another. Again, unconditional love. Thinking on 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, endures, does not fail. Unconditional love. To inspire hope, and not Negativity. Not despair, but hope. Solid hope. Hope not just in, in what we would like to be, not just wanting to bolster false hopes of other people, but to encourage genuine hope in the solid things of God and His Word. That our hope would not be misplaced, but properly placed, and we would encourage that hope in others. And then finally, at the bottom line, in my relationship with my family, and with you, my friends, and again, that God would have worked out in each of our lives, is that of inseparable union. We will disagree. There are things that we're not going to to be of one mind necessarily about. But God is not expecting that we be the same in everything, every opinion that we hold. But we can function in unity. we can can agree to maintain the unity of the Spirit and not to divide over things that ultimately are of very little consequence. When division does take place, and sometimes it must, sometimes fellowship cannot be maintained, and we see this in Scripture, it is not unity at all cost. Sometimes fellowship has to be broken. But even then, that it would be with great sadness and with an affirmation that you are my brother, you are my sister, I love you, and nothing will ever stop this. But in the matter of this particular behavior, which is sinful, I cannot continue to fellowship with you as I had been. But my heart's desire, the longing of my being, is that things would be right and that we can fellowship again. inseparable commitment and union toward each other. These are the things that God is in me, toward me, and He is in you and toward you. And He never intended these things to stop just in our experience with Him, but that they be manifest through us to the glory and praise of God. That people see us and they go, they love each other. They genuinely love one another. Let me close us in prayer.